In our continuing journey through the book of Genesis this summer, we come to Genesis 22, which is undoubtedly one of the most difficult uh, and challenging passages of Scripture. I will read it in its entirety. Um, Hear now the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set it out and went to the place in the distance that God had showed him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Then he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. 
And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told Abraham, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz the firstborn, Buz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlath, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we ask on this day that you will use the words of this text and the words of my sermon to help make us wiser. In the name of Christ, amen. In working our way through the book of Genesis, we encounter no more dominant figure than Abraham, and there is no more dominant story than the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22. I preached on this story 18 years ago under the title, The Most Difficult Passage in the Bible. It is still worthy of that characterization. While I normally refrain from reading or referring referring to former sermons, I did revisit this week what I said about the sacrifice of Isaac 18 years ago. And I want to share with you today how the story struck me then, how it strikes me now, and the similarities and differences between the two. In 2005, I pointed to an essay by Soren Kierkegaard that has set the tone for much of the discussion of this text since the mid-1800s, entitled, Is There Such a Thing as a Teleological Suspension of the Ethical? The essay compares other depictions in literature of parents who were willing to sacrifice their adult children. Agamemnon, Brutus, the Hebrew judge Jephthah. Each of these sacrifices was done in the name of a higher ethical value or requirement that was in place at the time. Saving the nation in war. Saving a ruler from a treasonous overthrow. Fulfilling a religious oath. By contrast, Kierkegaard said that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son has no higher good 
with any, any system of ethics other than simply obeying the voice of God. Abraham thus suspends everything that his God, his faith, his entire system of ethics have taught him to follow God's command. Faith for Abraham involves the teleological suspension of the ethical. Now the idea of suspending the ethical because of the command of God has some resonance with me. It led me to close that sermon 18 years ago by saying, Is it possible, I wonder, is it ever possible that God calls us to transcend our ethical norms? To transcend the universal laws of right and wrong by which all cultures, ours included, hold together. Is it possible? I went on to say that as your minister, I never want to advise you to violate long-standing norms of right and wrong that nearly all societies share and that reflect who you are. But neither do I want to shrink back from wrestling with this hard text and with the possibility it raises that God may call you or me to do that which transcends the soundest ethical teachings we have inherited. Therefore, I said with fear and trembling, not so much before you as before God, I say haltingly, falteringly, obeying the will of God may in some rare circumstance take us beyond even our highest notions of right and wrong. Obeying the will of God may in some rare circumstance take us beyond even the best human norms that are embodied in church or state, in philosophy or law. Concerning this dreadful event in the life of Abraham, I therefore end up willing to say there is such a thing as a teleological suspension of the ethical. I make no attempt to define it for any one person. I make no attempt to say when it would be the will of God to do such a thing. But I do believe, based on this most difficult passage in the Bible, it is possible that God might call us to suspend in a rare circumstance what we know to be right and wrong. Faith can be suspending the ethical at the call and the behest of God. That is what I said in 2005. In the intervening years, I have not stopped wrestling with this story. I teach it every year in Old Testament. As I have studied and taught the scriptures, I have learned more about how the Bible as a whole interprets and treats this story. These additional insights, which I've gained over the years, move in two different directions. 
But each direction in a way is encouraging to me. The first direction, starting immediately after the story in Abraham in, in Genesis, the Bible puts what I would call is a fence around Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. In a way as if the Bible itself is creating some distance from this act. Perhaps calling its legitimacy into question. It does so by narrating what happens to Abraham, to Sarah, and Isaac in the years following the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham and Sarah live in separate homes. God never again speaks to Abraham. Sarah never again speaks to Abraham. Isaac never again speaks to Abraham. When Sarah dies, Abraham buries her respectfully, but Isaac is not present. When Abraham dies, God blesses Isaac, for Abraham himself has never done so, which is unusual in biblical traditions. In other words, from what happens in the Bible after this story, it appears that Abraham's willing to sacrifice Isaac at the command of God is the last chapter in any significant role that Abraham plays in Israel's history. Even though Abraham lives for at least 38 more years, whatever God thought of Abraham's action, whatever role God had in it, Whatever nature and degree of passing of the test Abraham achieved after the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham exits the stage. The action passes on to Isaac and his generation. God's promise is carried on by those who come next. Now, this is a heavy sermon, so I think we need a little bit of nerdly comic relief at this point. Earlier in this series, when I was, you know, made, in this series on the Old Testament, I made reference to how hard the begats are to read, and then I said something about the begats. Well, a few days later, I saw a member of this church whom I deeply respect say, well, I was going to sign up for your Old Testament class, but I don't want to read all those begats. So I'm signing up for New Testament, which is good. That's good. That's good. Well, part of putting a fence around this text comes from some begats which follow. So listen and enjoy this. You know, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it's worth enjoying every once in a while. We see this focus on the future, not on Abraham, but on the future, in the pesky little genealogy that appears immediately after the sacrifice of Isaac, beginning in verse 20. I love reading the genealogies to you, so listen to this now with that introduction. After these things, after the sacrifice of Isaac, it was told Abraham... Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz the firstborn, 
Buzz, his brother. I love that conversation. Well, let's name the second one Buzz since we named the first one Us. Can you imagine having two sons named Us and Buzz? That's just great. You got to do something with the Bible to make it alive every once in a while. <laughs> Kimuel, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Then there is this statement that appears in this genealogy. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Right in the middle of this genealogy appears the name and character Rebekah. She is the only daughter listed, the only female listed, yet she is right in the center of this genealogy. For soon, in the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, we are going to see the story of Rebekah. Rebekah becomes the wife of Isaac. Longest chapter in the Bible. And it is through her and Isaac that the promise of God goes on after the sacrifice of Isaac. Thus the Rebekah who is mentioned right in the middle of this seemingly nondescript genealogy will become a primary instrument in God's carrying forth the promise of land, descendants, and blessed to be a blessing. The point is this, as soon as the angel of the Lord appears and tells Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy, the introduction of Rebekah signals a conclusion to this intense and lengthy role that Abraham has played in bearing God's promise. Sometimes he's done that heroically and sometimes he's done it with missteps. But always faithfully. As the torch is passed, Abraham's time on the stage comes to an end. Now that's one direction that the rest of the Bible leads us about this story. Kind of the honorable retirement Abraham the second direction in the way that scriptures treat Abraham is positive and laudatory and holding him up as worthy of esteem nearly a thousand years after Abraham and Sarah the prophet Isaiah is speaking words of reassurance to the people of Israel when they are under threat. And he calls their memory all the way back to Abraham. But you, Israel, my servant, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. In this passage Abraham is called God's friend. And he is the only person in scripture to be designated God's friend. Several hundred years later, in the New Testament, when James is writing his letter, he refers to Abraham as God's friend. He remembers 
this adulation. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews also heaps eloquent praise on Abraham for his trust that even if Isaac were sacrificed, God would raise Isaac from the dead. That doesn't appear in the Old Testament story. There wasn't really the concept of resurrection yet. But looking back at it, the writer to the Hebrews deduces that that trust is there. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that the descendants will be named after you. Abraham then considered the fact that God is able to raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. In addition to these biblical affirmations of Abraham throughout Christianity, Abraham is a vaulted figure because of his trust in God. Many of us that over the last 30 years have read Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, in a passage She says, Abraham, in effect, is called upon upon to sacrifice both his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And the Lord, in both instances, sends angels to intervene at the critical moment to save the child. And then she continues... Any father, particularly an old father, which the main character of her novel is, must finally give up his child to the wilderness and trust in the providence of God that there will indeed be angels in the wilderness. That is what parenting is of any child of any age. And theologian Fleming Rutledge writes, Abraham is for us the unparalleled example of steadfast trust in unimaginable circumstances. God never asked this of anyone else. It is a one-time event, never to be repeated. Never that is until the day of God seeming to be against God. When God's own son cries out from the cross, his only son, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? But the crucial difference, Rutledge adds, is this. In the cross, the Father is not sacrificing the Son. God the Father and God the Son, together with a single will, are enacting the purpose of God. And will become once for all that perfect burnt offering. 
for us human beings and for our salvation, part of which is salvation, I'm adding this part, from the dilemma that Abraham faced. The overall view of Abraham in both the Old and New Testaments is as a hero of faith, an embodiment of faith, a knight of faith, K-N-I-G-H-T, indeed the father of all who believe. It come, the Bible comes to this assessment even while putting a fence around this mystifying, terrifying, horrific, but one-time divine command from an angel of God. And a command from which an angel of God rescues both Abraham and Isaac at the last moment. Eighteen years ago, I concluded the sermon by saying that seeking to understand the scriptures, seeking to follow Jesus Christ, seeking to know and do God's will, sometimes leads us to face God with a shudder. Not unlike the shudder we experience just before we enter the dark tunnel of a scary ride at an amusement park. The most, this most difficult passage in the Bible is one such time. It is one such shudder. I add today that sometimes the only way to deal with a biblical text like this is to deal with it with a shudder. But if we will brace ourselves for the shudder and stick with the ride to its conclusion and do so in the company of others like this community that are committed to the ride, we just might get through it to the other side. Then we can take a deep breath for surviving the ride that itself has likely made us wiser and has taken our faith to a more profound and perhaps more human level. Amen.